Let us pray. God, in a world gone mad, break our hearts for what breaks your heart. Lord, we live in a world where the rulers do that which is right in their own eyes. Corruption is all around. There are wars and there are rumors of wars. There's death and destruction at the hands of destroyers. And Lord, that's what gets our attention. But Lord, break our heart for what breaks yours. For in our hearts there's rebellion, there's idolatry, there's ungratefulness, there's sin. Break our heart, Lord, for what breaks yours. We pray that you would be enthroned on the heart, on our hearts, that our lives would emanate the glory and the beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a world gone mad. In a world that rages against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God, help us to lift You up. And in these moments as we're together, remind us, O God, that there is a day coming when the stuff of this world will be passed, when rulers will, their rule will be ended, and You will be enthroned not only in our hearts, but over this kingdom and all kings and dominions and peoples. And God, we pray that this morning as we look at Your Word, that we will truly rejoice in the thought of You taking the throne. For Lord, the reality is, we're not so sure. Our hearts are drawn away and enticed by the stuff of this world. God, may we delight in You as our King And may we look for the day when you set things right here on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to direct your attention beginning in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can hopefully find one in the pew pew or chair in front of you. Or quickly download one um, from the App Store, and type in Revelation 11 and go to verse 14. I want to read our scripture for the morning. It's just a few verses here, wherein we see the enthronement of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, for prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, And heavy hail. And I have to somehow preach this. What a majestic, glorious, awful, horrible passage we face this morning. Yet in all of it, the beauty of it, we see the enthronement of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the reality is, and we all know it, is we live in a broken, fallen world for whom our hearts should be broken. And yet, what fills our hearts more often is a feeling of fear, a feeling of maybe anger, of disappointment, of worry and anxiety. Because all you have to do is look out there and you see the mess that it is 
and the mess that it continues to become. The fact of the matter is, in even the best of times, even the best king, ruler, or leader will be a disappointment. And at worst, they will be corrupt and selfish destroyers. That's a great place to begin, isn't it? For all of those of you who lead or hold public office or aspire to hold public office, do you know that you're going to be a disappointment? Ah, how dare you? Well, we're disappointing in whatever ways in which we lead because we can't endure forever, number one. Even if you were a perfect leader, you're going to pass away. The fact is, you can't be a perfect leader because... The fact of the matter is, we're incapable of such things. We can't achieve all that people hope for in you. You're you're unable to save society. You can't rescue our economy. You can't stamp out evil. You can't obtain or maintain full peace for the people over whom you lead and rule. Your disappointment. If our eyes are set upon hoping in those leaders. But our hope is not built in those leaders, or at least it shouldn't be. But how many of you out there with me would say, yeah, I've fallen in that trap. And I've placed my hope on something less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And because of that, anxiety fills my heart, anger, and I repent of that today. Because... I don't know about you. The season in which we live isn't worse than other ages. Come to us to church history class some night. And you'll find so quickly. It's only that in every age. We put our hope again and again and again and again. In some man, woman or system. That we think is going to save us. That we think is going to rescue us. That we think is going to bring peace, prosperity, and hope, and salvation to this broken, fallen world. But the matter of fact is that it's not going to happen. I don't care whether you love Trump, whether you love Biden, whether you're a communist or a capitalist. Not one of those systems is going to save us. Not one system is going to save you. Do I think that, that, that there are biblical principles? Absolutely. But, but if your heart goes there, then you're just making an excuse for, again, putting your hope back in these things. You see, injustice continues. Persecution of the righteous seems to prevail. Evil men and women prosper. And what is good is declared evil. And what is evil is declared good. And all this seems to increase more And more evil has progressed to such a point in America where many believe that we're past the tipping point. You could argue that was a long time ago. The fact of the matter is, is millennia of time has passed over and over. And we simply might say to some of us, welcome to the history of mankind and the history of nations and the progression of sin and depravity of mankind and its systems. Welcome aboard. Welcome to finally see it for what it is. Because I think we've lived with rose-colored glasses and we've been able to live in comfort and be comfortable with those things. They're like, wow, the rest of the world is up in flames and look at us. We're fat and healthy and just content. And yet, we've been robbed of the hope that many have had through the ages of looking forward to the day when King Jesus will reign. Because why do we need King Jesus? We've got our heaven right here. We've got our our five acres and our pigs and our, our chickens and our generator and our well. and We don't need anybody. We're good. Friends, while mankind speeds along this path of rebellion, it unwittingly is speeding towards the end of the tracks. God has been patient. He's been permitting time. Lots of it. Thousands of years of it. 
for mankind to repent. Meanwhile, in heaven, the heavenly hosts, the prophets and the saints wonder with the martyrs. How long, O Lord? How much longer? The persecuted and suffering church cries out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come and reign. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your salvation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation finally to fulfillment. And in Revelation 11, I believe we find that the time has come. The time has come for that prayer to be answered. Verses 14 and 15 read, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe has come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Right? All of you were thinking it. You know it. The Hallelujah Chorus. It was right there. You just couldn't escape it. You see, this seventh trumpet signals the coronation of King Jesus. A moment of jubilation for heavenly host, but a terrifying warning blast to the earth dwellers that have gone their own way. Their own rebellion is coming to an end. Joel 2.1 gives this idea of the trumpet being blown as a warning. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Did you hear that in verse 14? The third woe is coming soon. It's near, right? The day of the Lord is coming. At the sound of the seventh trumpet, the third woe is announced. And it's bad news. It's bad news for those who are reigning upon earth. For their kingdom of wickedness, corruption, and destruction And terror is almost done. It's as good as done. The sounding of that trumpet signals God's answer to answer that prayer. As we've noted, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's unveiled really over the next few chapters. From chapter 12 through 22, we're going to see that kingdom come and His will to be done in a way like it's never been seen on this earth before. You see, the answer begins here. The Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned and the earthly kingdom is replaced by the divine. So, we're told here that John hears voices. No, not like that. It's not, not like you hear voices in your head. Um, it's, 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 he hears loud voices in heaven. He doesn't say, say who. He just says loud voices. It kind of made me think of a guy, um, all the youth set on the right-hand side of the church in my church, all five or six of us, and we would sit behind this one family, and, and the dad had hearing aids, older gentleman, and uh, he, when the singing started, immediately we'd see him reach up, turn him off, and let loose with a loud voice. He may not, yeah, and I'm not even saying it was singing, okay, but it was, it was loud, and, and it was a voice. We, with that we knew, and we knew one thing. That our brother Stacy, who's gone on to be with the Lord, was confident in the thing that he was saying. He just wanted to make it known, right? He didn't, he, he didn't care. You'd hear him squeak, and boom, he'd let, let loose. What's interesting is that he, they, John does not tell us who. He just said it was loud voices. It was loud voices. And by not telling who it was, the focus takes us away from who... And puts it on what they are saying. And yet, what do we want to do? Well, who was saying it? Who, who, doesn't matter. As commentator Dr. Grant Osborne writes of this hymn, or poem, if you will, depends on is it sung? Because a hymn is just a poem, right? Put to, put to music. Their song celebrates the reversal of the tragic earthly situation during the age of sin, as the kingdom of this world is finally replaced by the divine kingdom. Like many prophetic passages, this, this passage is, is introduced as though it's done. Okay, he's taken the throne and this stuff is, is done. We observe this today in many of, of the prophetic passages which have been fulfilled on some level but have a future completion. So it is with the kingdom of God on earth. 
He is enthroned in the beginning of the of the beginning of the beginning or and the beginning of the end is at hand. You see, it will be established, but the full effects of that establishment are going to be fulfilled in the chapters to come. This is highlighted in the phrase it has become in the Greek. This phrase is a this is this is good. I know nothing. You know, I know no Greek. I know very little Greek. And the Greeks I know generally are guys I've met in restaurants. But this Greek is not something I, I know much about. It's proleptic errorist tense. What that means is it describes a future event that is so certain that it is to be spoken of as if it had already taken place. So the pers- perspective of this verb is as John looks at this and sees it happening before him, it's done. It's a done deal, right? The train has left the station. It is, it is on its way to completion. And therefore, there's the rejoicing in heaven. At the time of the recent coronation of King Charles II, or third, I'm sorry, he's not the second, he's the third, right? I, I don't keep up on these things. Ask my wife. She does. King Charles III in Westminster Abbey, which I, I didn't watch it. I did hear a lot of discussion about the response to this coronation. And it was funny because people were like, they'd, they'd pan to this one person. They'd say, well, do you see the expression on their face? And, and do you notice where they're sitting and who they're behind? And, and how, oh, they've been really slighted by that. But a lot of attention given to not only where they were, but how they responded. I think we get to see a little bit of that in this passage here. We get to see the 24 elders and the camera swings to them and says, look at how they respond to the coronation of King Jesus. And it says in verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. You see, the heavenly response to the enthronement of the sovereign Lord over earth's kingdom is complete submission and thanksgiving. We were introduced to these 24 elders back in chapter 4 and 5. And here, these elders, these ones who sit in heaven, seeing all that is done, seeing all that is, is being played out before them, they don't sit back and say, hmm, we'll see. We'll see. You're right? With King Charles, you know, we, we've seen enough of his history that we could go, huh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, how much influence he'll have on this figurehead throne that he has um, that we fought a revolution and not have to care about. Um, oh, sorry. Sorry. Sorry, guys. Uh, my, my real feelings were coming out there. But we'll see. Even in my response, even in our responses, right, it tells us something of what we think of, of both their throne and their king, and specifically this king. Here we see the same. And what is the response of the 24 elders before the throne? They don't sit and say, yes, very good. Cheers. They fall before the king of kings. And in complete submission and obeisance. And they, they sing a song. These elders don't merely talk a good game. They demonstrate this abject submission before the sovereign ruler of the universe. And then verbally proclaim thanksgiving at the coronation. For his reign will do more than just drain a swamp of corruption. But it will, in fact, establish a reign on earth as like the world has never seen. That is so much more hopeful. It gives us something to look forward to. Something that is sure. Why is it sure? Because He is Lord God Almighty, it says here. That Lord God Almighty focuses in on the fact that He is sovereign. He can and will bring this to pass. It it stresses His irresistible power. His sovereignty over all things, which have become increasingly undeniably evident in our journey through Revelation. If you've been paying attention, you see more and more the noose tightening. More and more the hope of the saints 
appearing. And so you see this all the way through and now we hear them saying that he who is and who was and forever will be, right? And that emphasizes in their hymn an uninterrupted existence, which makes this very reign possible. Until now, God has allowed these hostile powers to have rule over his people and the peoples of the earth. But now he's going to begin to rule directly. And the elders in heaven clearly know God's power. They understand this whole thing of eternality. You just take a minute. Can you explain to me what eternity is? And explain it to a child what eternity is. Well, there's no beginning and no end. Explain something. Could you give me an, could you give me an object lesson that could help me understand that? Well, God? Yeah, we can't understand. We can't fathom that. But in, but but these who are there, they proclaim that he is, he was and he is and he forever will be. And they get it and they rejoice that this age of sin and destruction is about to come to an end. Because finally, the Lord God Almighty will be honored as he should be and his people will be finally and forever happy in him. And yes, happiness is a good word, right? It's the fact that in this life, the things that we're happy about pass away. And they're less than perfect. Sometimes they're not even good. But in, when we are happy in the Lord, you say, well, that's joy. Well, yes, but true joy should be full of happiness. And the old, the old writers all knew this. They, did, they didn't shy away from the word happy. They just made sure that the focus of the happiness was God himself. That's good. And we, he will be forever honored and we will be forever happy in him. Imagine that. I can't be happy for an hour. Because something will happen. Life doesn't, you know, uh, not everything's going my way, as the old song says. No, that's not good. Number one, if it did, that would be bad. And number two... It doesn't. You know, I can't even hardly, you know, I, I set my alarm last night. And, and hey, wouldn't you know, I woke up right when my alarm was supposed to go off. And I went, or five minutes after actually, and I'm like, why didn't my alarm go off? Well, because some idiot, when he set his phone last night, set it ten minutes later. And I'm like, wait, that, oh no, my day's, my day's ruined. I've, you know, I've, I lost five minutes. You see, my happiness is so easily upset. How about yours? What does it take to upset your happiness in this life? Well, there's a whole lot. I could give you a whole lot more reasons to be unhappy. We're surrounded by it, right? But imagine being in a place. There's nothing to be unhappy about. You couldn't find it if you looked for it. Because the one who is and was and forever will be is sovereignly forever over all of this. And everything under his rule will be for your eternal happiness in him. I can't even hardly imagine it. But I can sure look forward to it. And I'm sure that we'll rejoice when we find it. I think these elders would echo the psalmist in Psalm 72:11 when it says may all the kings fall down before him and all the nations serve him. But that which for, for which heaven rejoices the fact of the matter is the world and its governments despise. But what about you and me? Do we rejoice in the thought of the reign of almighty God? Not just in what what we theologically believe. Not just in what is our understanding of what we should rejoice in. But do I, today, actually rejoice in the reign of Jesus? Both in my heart and what will be. Or is there a little bit of me like, "Mm, I don't know. I kind of like my life. Or parts of my life. If he would just take care of the parts I tell him to take care of, then I'm all good. When in fact, we have such low sights. We've, we've shot for such a low standard. 
for thousands of years. God's salvation plan has been moving forward. He's withheld the final judgment in mercy and in patience towards us and towards this world. But verse 18 signals that the time for repentance, the time to submit to the reign of Jesus Christ is coming to an end. In the, in the sense of making a decision, a make a choice, turning to. Because here's what it says. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of, your, of the earth. You see, the enthronement of Jesus signals that the completion of God's salvation plan is at hand. And that's both good and bad news. The nations raged, it says. That's a clear reference to Psalm chapter 2, which serves as a warning to rulers and peoples of the earth. And I want to take a moment to read Psalm 2, because I think what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 11 is a fulfillment of the warning that was issued back in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Each one did that which was right in their own eyes, right? He who sits in the heavens Holds them in derision is, is what this means. The, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, it says again. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today have, I have begotten you. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And listen to the psalmist David's call to the kings of the earth. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Do you hear the the tones of Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, sitteth not in the seat of the scornful, but take, makes his delight in the law of the Lord. For in his law doth he meditate day and night. That one, that one, he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, whose roots Roots are deep and strong, and, and he will bear fruit in season, right? But then in the Hebrew it says, not so the wicked. Not so the wicked. Why? Because they will be like the chaff which the wind drives away. They will be suddenly blown away. For their roots are in the, the, the temporary. Their hope is in the temporary. Their hope is in this world. And they may look fruitful and happy and prosperous, And it's gone. And that is one of the, the, one of the gateway psalms to understanding the whole of the psalms are these two chapters right here. The wicked prospering, and then they're not. The righteous suffering, and then they're not. Because they're rooted in the eternal. They are rooted in the one who was and is and ever shall be. Yet generation after generation of kings and rulers and leaders of nations have raged against the Creator. The peoples have plotted against the King of Kings and done that which was right in their own eyes. See, while Scripture makes it clear that the primary roles of government are to punish evil, praise good, and promote peace, government power is wielded year after year by people seeking personal advancement, corrupt intentions, and having control of power. And yet, sadly, mankind continues to put their hope in the visible temporary kingdoms of man. Don't we? We get our hopes up, and we get them dashed. 
once again disappointed because another human being is in power and they're disappointing. Even the best. How did you fare through the whole search for a speaker of the house? Oh, 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 oh. And then they elect one and go, oh, oh. Even a good man, right? They can't meet our hopes, our expectations. They won't because it's impossible. Our brother Mark, we love you, brother, for serving on the the county council. But, amen, I, I agree. But we don't put our hope in our brother. We, we pray for him. We thank God for him. We pray that God would use him. But he can only do what God has given him to do to the best of his ability. And he, believe it or not, Lisa, he's a human being. <laughs> he even has flaws. But man, we're coming, rushing towards this day in which we will, will see clearly that our hope as a believer has been rightly placed. You see, while all this stuff persists around us, the corruption and evil, and while we as followers of Christ naturally face the opposition of the state, if you will, simply because our kingdom is not of this world, And I'm not just talking about in China, where this week they arrested 13 out of a house church and imprisoned them. I'm not just talking about Iraq, where people's homes are still being destroyed and people being killed. I'm not talking about India. I'm not talking about Africa. I'm talking even here in America, where because we are not, we are not primarily citizens of this kingdom, but rather citizens of the eternal kingdom, we face that opposition. And in this crosshair, in this, in this turmoil, John introduces something that's called a chiasm. Some of you are familiar with it. It's a literary structure to try to bring emphasis to a, a particular point. And we see it here in verse 18. It, and it's introduced with this quote that we've been talking about, the nations rage, but your wrath came. And so that's sort of an introductory statement to it. And we see here a little bit of irony. Raging of the world and the rage or wrath of God in response. They stand in opposition, their puny opposition, but God has the final word. And we see the final word in this chiasm. What a chiasm is, is you've got, and there's different styles of it. In Psalms, you may have, we're only going to have sort of two parts to this. It may go A, B, C, D, E, and then back out. And sometimes the middle thing is what's most important. And sometimes it's the beginning and end that's most important. In this case, it's, it's to be taken as a whole package, but what is right in the middle of it is what gives us hope. The thing that we see coming to fulfillment. And so, first of all, you've got line A at the beginning and the time for the dead to be judged and for the destro- and put line A at the end that go together and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That, that should be our next slide where it shows my little fancy arrow there. That's really, really sharp. Um, and what that says is this is part of the package. It's not to be taken separate from. Because the fact of the matter is, the nations of the earth, the nations of the earth are going to see and face the judgment of God as this time or plan of salvation is coming to an end. But what is at the heart of this, and this is in our next slide, are the two B lines in which the emphasis is placed upon the reward of God for his servants, for those who fear his name. It's the completion of God's plan. You see, there's, there's an understood for rewarding in that second line. It says, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints. And many would say that prophets and saints are the Old and New Testament followers of Christ. And then in the next one, you've got, and for rewarding those who fear your name. That's actually, if you go back to Psalm 2, do this on your own time. Um, but you go back to Psalm 2 and you'll find that same language there about fearing God. 
Who are those who fear God? People who know Him for who He is and reverence Him for who He is, for wor- who worship Him and who? Y'all. Y'all. The great and the small. Y'all. Everybody who is fearing the name of God. Nobody's left out. And that is that at the heart of that, and I don't, I can't begin to help you get how momentous this is. This is a big deal. Not the chiasm, but the truth that it's trying to punch through to us. To say, this is it! Folks, this is why we come here every Sunday. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what your hope is. That one day, this is going to be over. In a good way. And truly, once and forever, even, even now, for me as a fallen human being in this world to say, Lord, take them out. Take them out. Oh, I feel like such a hypocrite. Because why take them out when I, I deal with my own sin? But in this day, when we stand before Him and it's no longer anything to do with us about dealing with the wicked and it's all about His name, we will be able to say with purity of heart, Lord, deal with it. Don't let this go on. Your name is too too glorious. They are too destructive. Did you catch what they're called here? The destroyers of the earth? And please don't let someone twist this into saying, see, this is all about, you know, the climate change or whatever. Folks, no. Just no. (laughs) This is about those who since the beginning of sin have used their power and their position for to, to take. Just to take. And destroy what God created. You see, the, the proclama- this proclamation that John records here in this chiasm should fill our hearts with hope and assurance. It reminds us that no matter how dark or corrupt our world and its systems may be, that God is the ultimate victor. Evil will be defeated and righteousness will prevail. It should, should fill our hearts with hope. And assurance. But such assurance is for those who have hoped in the Lord. Let me ask you do you hope in the Lord? Is your hope there? Or is it still in, Lord, hey, I'm kind of on board with this Christian thing as long as you you bless me and make life good? Because my hope is really here. Or is my ultimate hope firmly placed? Truly, on Jesus Christ and His payment for my sin, that then cleanses me from all unrighteousness, that then has given me life in Christ, that I may know Him, be with Him forever. Is that where my hope is? Psalm, in Psalm chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, It says, as I mentioned a bit ago, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What way are you traveling? Are you traveling the way that leads to destruction? Each one did that which was right in their own eye. Or are you following after Christ, the way of the righteous? The people of earth have raged against God. They've chosen judgment. They have walked the path of rebellion that leads to destruction. And Proverbs 13, 13 says, Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. You see, this idea of, of reward goes clear back to Genesis. And, and, the, and early Christian thought made much of the reward but the problem is, is often we, we get our reward out of whack. But if we understand, as I hope we can help draw out of here a little bit, that the reward is Christ himself, that it is him and not just some physical, tangible things like, OK, yeah, I'll have, I'll have all the things I need when I get to heaven. No, you will have the one you need when you get to heaven. He will be the all sufficient one. He will be 
everything for life and for godliness. He will be the eternal focus of all of our needs. In Isaiah 40.10 talks about this idea of the reward. It says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before him. This word translated from the Hebrew sakar is, is this idea of a payment for a contract, a salary, or specifically compensation, benefits, their rewards or their wages. Well, think about that. What will we get in heaven that we deserve? Good answer. That was a perfect answer. Nothing. What wages will we get that have been earned for us? Everything. Right? Christ is our great reward and He purchased that reward for us by His death on the cross. And so whatever you get is a gift of God. Right? Now, the wages of sin is death, is destruction, is judgment. Those are wages that we earn. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are wages, but they are wages of grace. It's wages that we, as those who've, who've come to this late in the game, if you will, get the full benefits of Christ's purchase. You see, those who hope in the Lord will not be disappointed. They will never be let down. For His reward is sure. So where is your hope? So finally, as we, we have thought through this thing of wrath, God facing God's wrath, of, of enjoying God's reward, finally John's attention is directed to the temple in heaven in verse 19. While early in chapter 11, um, we, we heard about the measuring of the temple on, uh, the temple on earth. Here, he record, records this about the temple in heaven. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy, heavy hail. So back in, John, in Revelation 4.1, John saw a door open to heaven. Remember that? Right? And we look up and we see heaven. Well, here, now the temple is opened. And he takes us into the heavenly holy of holies. And in the, well, in the, in, in this earthly temple, where God's presence was manifested, right? Remember the tabernacle? You'd go back into the Holy of Holies. And well, you didn't. Neither did I. We wouldn't have. We weren't exactly the, the high priest. But it was, you had to be really careful, you know, who went back. There was a whole procedure about who could, what you had to do. They'd tie a rope to your leg in case you got struck down and they'd pull you out and send the next one. No, they didn't send the next one in. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is that was that was the most sacred place in that temple. Well, here we we get the idea that this is the most sacred place. What makes it the most sacred place? The most holy place. It's not about what is happening there. It's about who is there. And most will argue that this is as close to a theophany that we're going to get. It's as close as we're going to get to seeing God the Father. Okay, in the temple. And what do we see? We see the ark and a storm. An ark and a storm. In these symbols of the ark and storm, the presence of the God in his mercy to his people and his judgment on the earth are made manifest. Now that word manifest, for those of you that don't use it, it's, it's put on display. We see it, right? It's as close as we're going to get a picture of God. The Ark of the Covenant was one of the most important symbols of the Old Testament. Um, it was the very core of the Israelite religion. It contained the two tablets of the, the Ten Commandments, or the Decalogue, as, as you know, writers who like to sound like they know what they're talking about might write, or it, it, that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Which is why it got its name, the Ark of the Covenant. Those that, that Decalogue or the Ten Commandments were actually a covenant to get, of God with His people. Here's, here's your instruction, right? You shall love the Lord your God, right? And you should love one another. You, you sort of, you have the two tables and, and those, that's sort of the, the whole commandment summarized there. And, and then it also contained a jar of manna it, that didn't turn to worms, 
Okay, for those of you that, that were thinking, wait, wait a minute. And then Aaron's rod that budded. And you can, you can see a number of passages from Exodus that, and, and Hebrews 9-4 to see more of that. It symbolizes this. It was God's covenant of mercy. Matter of fact, the top of it was called the mercy seat, right? It was God's covenant of mercy with his people. It was the central symbol of Yahweh's or Jehovah's presence with Israel. Traveled with them wherever they went. It's the heart of the of atonement for the nation and the basis for its victories over its enemies. So much so that it began to be something that, hey, I got an idea. Let's take this off the battle with us and then we'll really kick some tail. <laughs> Your own, right? Um, it, it, was, it, it was to be treated in a certain way because it was about God's presence, not about that box, right? In Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, when they, you know, their, their faces melt off when they see this box. Well, it, there's some problems theologically with that, okay? Just so you know. Um, but that's, the, that's sort of how they began to view it, was this ark. But it was, it was not about that. It's about his presence. And in Revelation 21.3, we see a verse that's tightly connected with verse 19 here. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is about the presence of God with his people. It is, we're seeing it unveiled, the lightning and the thunder and the ark of the covenant. Like, hey... He's enthroned. The Lord is enthroned. God is with us. We've heard that before, right? As we begin to celebrate the season of Advent, the first coming of Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. He, is, he, he came to be with us, but he's not with us as he one day will be with us. Right? At this point, he's saying, it's at hand. It's, it's almost here. On the other hand, the storm descriptions in Scripture often signify God's majesty and judgment. His presence commands the most powerful forces of creation in the storms and the lightning and, and the earthquakes and the hail. And while these storms signify this fearsome majesty, the hail specifically draws our mind back, and it would for the readers of this, to the seventh plague of Egypt, which, any guesses what it was? You're asleep. Hail, right? Hail, right? And, the, and then the destruction of the king of the Amorites in Joshua 10 and the judgment of, 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 of God upon on Agog. And in Ezekiel 38:23, we see this play out. It says, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations, and then they will know that I am the Lord. He throws a hailstorm and says, here's going to be the outcome. They will know that I'm God. All will know. Why? Because he's going to conquer to the ends of the earth. And Paul references that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see there, in, in, God is present in his mercy, but he's present in his judgment. Because this world and its corruption can't go on. It has to come to an end. If, if God is a, is a God of his word, and he is, then this can't be allowed to go on forever. But it also means that because it doesn't, we can find true delight forever with him, with none of the garbage. What hope should fill our hearts? On this week, the week of Thanksgiving, it's so fitting that we have these elders giving thanks in heaven in the midst of both judgment and salvation at the enthronement of the King of Kings. And while we look around us and see the stuff, we don't have to despair, but be anxious for nothing. But with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. We pray for what is, but we give thanks for all that he is and 
does and what ultimately he will be. Because, friends, his reign is sure. His reign is good. And his presence is forever and will be with us forever with all of his people. You see, his reign is sure. The evil and corruption of this world will not endure forever. God is good. He's merciful and just. And he is coming with his eternal reward. The reign of those who've ruled in corruption and destruction will be past. And we will have Christ. And God's presence is forever and will be with us in all of his righteousness, in the beauty of his holiness, in the splendor of his wisdom. We will know then and forever the delight of him together with all the saints of all the ages. So what do we do in response to this? Because this is not yet. We have hope. We rejoice and we give thanks to God for His reign. The certainty of it, it's good and His presence with His people forever. We can have that because we are a people that looks forward. We are not a people that only sees the present. That's, that's something different for the believer. They don't look at this present world alone. We look beyond to see what is certain and permanent and forever. And to that we give God thanks and we delight. You see, we look forward to his reign. His reign that has begun, right? His kingdom has come, he said, but it's not in full. And one day it forever will be and we will forever be with the Lord. We usually associate that with funerals. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Friend, that's our hope. That is our, the hope of the living and the dead, right? We should look forward to that as much as, well, you know, they passed away, so, so shall they ever be with the Lord. Oh, man, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we, we exalt your name but you are highly exalted above anything we could even begin to describe. But Lord, we know that your throne, your place is on, our, on the throne of our hearts and on the throne of this universe. And while you reign, you have given some, given some hold on the reins for those that have power. If that will not last forever. Lord, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And so we cry out to you, O Lord. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to you and your name and the glory of your praise in your kingdom forever and ever. And to that we sing hallelujah. We sing Lord reign to the praise of your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.